Well, hopefully you found some respite from this awful heat. I'm sure you can hear it. In the background, we finally got the AC back and running, and it's a little bit more tolerable here uh, in the workspace. But as things are heating up outside, uh, they're getting a lot worse, and it feels as though uh, we're completely unraveled in the wake of the coronavirus. And I'm sure, I'm sure, you've heard me say in the past that you know, just vote right, uh, <clears throat> vote in November and vote the way that the elites want you to, and this will all go away. But I believe there are some real deep lacerations here, uh, not only in the economy, but also in the fact that I'm not so sure we can trust our forecasters anymore. And we'll talk about that in an interesting New York Times article that brings up uh, the German economy. But We'll start bef uh, after the opening salvo with a really interesting piece by uh, the IMF and uh, the World Economic Forum and a warning from Ray Dalio that he says that the China-U.S. relations could actually turn into a hot war and why I don't believe that that could happen. And finally, we're going to finish off with the fact that 30-year mortgages are now starting to dip below a 3% rate. This is all coming up on the Kevin Prendeville Show. So we begin the day with, as always, the opening salvo. And it's our first volley in the uh, battlefield of ideas. It's our food for thought, and it's how we set the tone for the rest of the episode. And when it comes to the big idea today... And that first shot, I want you to keep in mind that there are layers, not only to every story, but to every action. To every message someone sends you in anything sent to the media, big or small, there's always an agenda behind it. Now, this doesn't mean it could be a bad thing. It might be a good thing. For instance, when a man is courting a woman, He'll buy her dinner. She gets fed, and maybe he gets what he wants in the aftermath. Both have an agenda, and there's mutual benefit out of it. There's the malicious side. If the Maxwell situation, Epstein situation, is to be taken by where a young woman is forced into years of slavery because they were courted by someone with an ulterior agenda. And there are always games played in the media with quotes, with ideas, and with what's not quoted and what's not said. We're going to talk today about a New York Times article that claims that the German economy will reign supreme after COVID. And we're going to dive deeper into that. We're also going to talk about when it comes to the World Economic Forum and the IMF. We're going to talk about how the general idea of a CEO and a business leader has changed. And that we have to wonder how that shapes the economy going forward. 
How does that affect the stock market? How does that affect if we want to invest ethically? How to do that? Can we even trust those who are putting out statements about the future of the economy, as we'll see with Ray Dalio's claim? We can see the long-term effects already of our economic agendas by the fact that our 30-year mortgages are dipping below 3% and will likely stay there for a while. It might dip back up into the threes, but our fours and fives, I don't know if those are coming back for a while. All this to say that we have entered an era in which agendas and overall goals seem to have taken precedent over individual goals and ambitions. And that is something that our founders did not prepare for. You look at the way that the Constitution is written, you even look at the way that our government is set up, which goes back uh, on many principles, but one of them is the philosophical writings of French philosopher Baron de Montesquieu. Baron is a name, not a title. And uh, Montesquieu wrote that because uh, a parliament or a king or a bureaucracy all have their own uh, ambitions for power, you should pit those three, you should all give each enough power um, but split up their responsibilities so that they will naturally vie with power for each other and that produces the most liberty for the people because the government is not uh, fighting the people but fighting themselves. And so you look at how the powers are separated within the government uh, between the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch, and our founders accounted for that. What they didn't account for, and is what has happened, is these systems, uh, be they Congress or the judicial branch, essentially kicking power up, that instead of vying for their own authority, Congress kicks over to the uh, judicial branch and basically says, you know, write this into law. Uh, you, that's where you get the birth of activist judges and the like, or you get uh, a president that uses uh, a lot of executive privileges. And this is not something necessarily that the, the founders planned for, and we can see this now in the corporate world. And we're again, with our first article, we're going to go over this, but it'll be a running theme as we explore the media, how CEOs view themselves, and how economics as a whole is beginning to shift. And that is how we will begin the first segment. So every year, the uh, World Economic Forum holds a symposium, essentially. And it's, a, it's essentially a gathering of all the most powerful CEOs and bankers and uh, influencers in the business world and they'll talk about various issues and um, things that they would like to see change in the world. And that's really essentially the, the idea and formation of this program um, was so that international companies um, and individuals could all meet and almost have like a, a corporate version of the, the, the UN. Uh, deals could get done or... Uh, more smoothly, there could be um, sides that may normally, uh, in the old days, you know, be vying for power and trying to um, knock each other out. 
there would be more of an understanding. And hopeful and insightful meetings usually occur at the forum, but and this was sent in to me by uh, a viewer. Again, you can email me at kevin at financialtransitions.us um, if you find something that you think I should cover on the show. And uh, they sent this over here, and it's from the World Economic Forum themselves, so it is verified, because they release a uh, statement before the year before um, that essentially covers what's going to be said, and there'll be uh, clips from it, um, it's not uh, taped or recorded. Uh, the meetings are not taped or recorded, but there are statements that are made afterwards, um, sort of like a, a press release. And uh, the Great Reset is on the table, and that's actually the title for their next symposium in, in 2021. And as it's said, this is written by their PR department, uh, the Great Reset is a commitment to jointly and urgently build the foundations of our economic and social system for a more fair, sustainable, and resilient future. That ought to be a government function, not a corporate function. Corporations build things, and corporations sell the things that they build. That's it. If a, if a CEO wants to donate their time or change social models or do whatever, they can go run for office, they can go donate, and many of them do, uh, to various political organizations and the like. I am worried that it seems as though we have a generation of powerful business owners who believe that it is their job to change the social system and economic system even. Because as we move away, and, and we explored this um, a long time back, really in the show's beginning, so it's a good idea to bring this up now, where the Great Economic Reset, as it's titled here, is really going to be a revolution against the free market. It has to be. Because you don't talk about changing the foundations of economic and social systems without talking about changing them. Right? Otherwise you'd either be talking about reinforcing them or not bring them up at all. And the opposite of capitalism is mercantilism. And this word doesn't get thrown around much anymore because it's usually associated with a presumably dead uh monetary ideology which is based on protectionism and tariffs. Now the new version of mercantilism would look a little different but in essence it's the opposite of capitalism where you only have big business essentially because you only have big business that can afford it. Mercantilism is in practice what it does is and it developed around it was the earliest version of economics essentially and this goes back uh, back to me the medieval era, just just right around uh, the the late medieval ages. So uh, just as we were sort of evolving out of feudalism, um, which is a more primitive economy, where essentially the idea is that 
if a country produces the product, you want your citizens to buy your products. That way you get the most profit. And in order to do this, you raise tariffs on all of your um, all of your competitors. So, for instance, if uh, France makes a certain kind of cheese that the Germans also make, then they're going to raise a tax on that German cheese so that it's more expensive. And if it's more expensive, therefore, the populace will buy the French version and the government will receive a, a tax on that and gain a profit. But unfortunately, in relations with other countries, too, it because the idea is that, too, you'll be a, a net exporter because you won't be importing your um, uh, your opponent's uh, products, it makes trade deals virtually impossible uh, because you can't come to the table and say, okay, we won't allow you to sell X product in our country, but we expect you to trade with us. We expect you to give us something. And so you're coming to the table already with some hostility. And you can we saw with the globalization of the world um, in, in the 1700s, you know, this coming to the table with hostility with other nations isn't really an effective form of of trade and the free trade doctrine came about where you would essentially um, keep tariffs very low and trading would be done between governments and corporations and that it would make things more efficient and that net exporting wasn't the goal of the economic philosophy and it also led to lower costs because though you had transports uh, costs uh, additional transport costs on certain goods, they could pr be produced a lot cheaper. Or if your country didn't have to import raw materials for said product, um, then that if they were just buying the product instead of buying uh, the raw materials for that product, um, the overall thing would be cheaper. And this led, again, to a better life for the consumer. Now, what did that have to do with the World Economic Forum? That is, there are only two economic systems, mercantilism, and broadly speaking, mercantilism and capitalism. And there are all sort, sorts of subsets between the two. I understand that. But for the purposes of this discussion, if we're going to dismantle capitalism, that's the thing we have to go back to. And not only is it ineffective, but it's ineffective on a broad scale, which the World Economic Forum is clearly pushing for because that's, that's their jurisdiction. That's the idea of the whole system. Here's another thing. It, as in this global summit, requires a new social contract centered on human dignity, social justice, and where societal progress does not fall behind economic development, which essentially means that they're going to put social justice above economic development. This is terrifying. For those who don't know the concept of the social contract, the social contract was a philosophical idea that you can pin in the 
really at the root of the Enlightenment in the 1630s, 1640s, but wasn't written about till about 100 years later with um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, another French philosopher. And he has the famous line of, uh, a line that I sometimes quote, and that is, man is born free, yet everywhere he is in chains. That essentially, this argues that, that men, and this is not a religious argument, it's not a, a biblical argument, but a political argument, that men have the right to choose their own beliefs. And by men, I mean humanity. You know that. Um, by rewriting the social contract, you're essentially arguing for dismantling all of the political philosophies that come for that. Because, and the idea, in, in, in daring to question the idea of whether or not man is born free, you dare to question whether or not we even have rights as an individual. And the social contract was the basis for two very different political systems, the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Now, the French Revolution, which established, established the first French Republic um, in the 1780s, uh, well, formally 1791, but fought for through this, uh, 1789 to 1781, one of the things that Rousseau wrote about in his uh, was the will of the people and the fact that social distinctions have to be agreed upon by the people, which is essentially his way of saying that your wealth and money and power don't identify you as someone of great value to the society, that this idea is that only the people determine who is valuable to them, which is an idea that we can break down, but for the purposes of this conversation, this thought is echoed again in the 1880s by a German scholar by the name of Heinrich von Triske. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, you know how I am with foreign names. And uh, essentially, his theory was that uh, he based his philosophy on the writings of Sigmund Freud and uh, even uh, a little bit on Frederick Eagles, but he essentially said that because he believed only in a purely rational world, which is code for he essentially didn't believe in God, he said that the only immortality that one could achieve uh, was in their sacrifice for the state and the state alone. That essentially... If you gave your life for the state or you did something, or you created some great work and you dedicated that to the state, whether it was uh, Germany or Italy or France, that was the only way you could be immortal uh, and immortalized and that it was some sort of figurative thing. And this all comes back to the idea that is laid out in these principles here that there needs to be a new social contract because you throw out the baby with the bathwater and you throw out the principles that we laid out in the American founding. The individual has certain inalienable rights that the government must 
observe and cannot violate. If we throw the social contract out, if we throw away those ideas, then that government system becomes invalidated. And what replaces it? And furthermore, do you want Klaus Schwab to tell you that you don't have inalienable rights? Rights that, are, that come from God, not him. Do you really want the Prince of Wales who's going to be speaking at this event, do you want him to tell you that you don't have rights that come from God and he is granted his position of power and authority by natural in English common law, which espouses and is the basis for all of this? You've got uh, his statement, uh, and again, the Prince of Wales here, that he's put out, in order to secure our future and to prosper, we need to evolve our economic model and put people in the planet at the heart of global value creation. This is turning less and less about economic growth and more and more about social justice. You can see this in, again, Klaus Schwab, the leader of the economic forum, um, where he's essentially he's talking about climate change and that the next global disaster is going to be it's going to have dramatic consequences for mankind. Now, this isn't a science show. This isn't a conspiracy show. This isn't an anti-science or conspiracy show. But overregulation kills small businesses. The difference between the Trump and Obama economies should be evident enough, but there's a litany of other, other evidence throughout the 20th and 19th centuries that we could go back to. Yet the most educated of our elites, the ones who were supposed to be preserving economic freedom, seem to not care anymore. Ladies and gentlemen, this is bigger than me or you. This is bigger than personal finance, even. Um, and should the world's bureaucratic institutions, like the IMF, the World Economic Forum, should they turn on the values that created them? we are really going to need to find a way to have money outside the system. Again, I read uh, Simon Black a lot, uh, Sovereign Man Investing. I don't mean to send traffic away from here, but he talks a lot about getting second passports uh, and as somebody who was rather high up in the military uh, before coming into the, um, coming to the private sector. He understands this kind of stuff. Troubled times, but I think you should be warned. With that being said, coming up in our second segment, we'll talk about billionaire uh, investor Ray Dalio, really the largest and best hedge fund uh, manager on the planet right now, talking about a potential heat up in the conflict between the U.S. and China. We'll get to his thoughts in a moment. So we've got a really interesting piece here by uh, Ray Dalio, uh, who actually took this uh, time on LinkedIn to 
speak his mind about essentially his idea that the U.S. and China could potentially get into an armed conflict and not like tomorrow. He's talking about 2030s. And at first I was skeptical and I'm still kind of skeptical. But after I read his piece, I can understand a little bit of what he's saying. Now, I want to focus on the beginning of this piece because I think we can understand what he is talking about in terms of macroeconomics and some personal finance and some microeconomics. So let me read you a, a small excerpt here um, in this paragraph. He says, In telling these stories, I will try to convey them without bias. I believe that to accurately understand both history and what is happening now, I need to see things through relevant parties' eyes, including those of enemies. He means China in this case. While there are, of course, allies and enemies, it is tempting to demonize the enemies. Most people in countries are simply pursuing their own interests in ways that they believe that are best for them. Remember, we talked about this in the opening salvo, and we also talked about this uh, in the last segment. But they find uh, interest in ways that they are best for them, so I try to find it productive to see things through their eyes and counterproductive to demonize them, talking about the enemy. If you hear me say things that sound sympathetic to former or existing enemies, like Hitler built a strong economy before going to war, please let me please know that it is because I am seeking accuracy and the need to be truthful rather than politically correct in conveying my thinking. While I might be wrong and we may not agree, it's okay with me as long as I am describing the picture as accurately as I can. But before I begin in recounting the story of the United States, I'd like to remind you of the archetypal big circle that I described earlier so that you can keep it in mind as you read about the events that transpired up to the present. present. And he goes into this cycle that I wanted to get in here, um, that he mentions it through a super oversimplification of the whole thing. In a nutshell, he says, he's, and this is his own invention, that the big cycle transpires as follows, that there's a established world order, and through peace, prosperity, and a productive... Uh, debt growth, talking about larger economies here, uh, that could be trading deficits, uh, monetary debt in general, um, personal debt, uh, the general growth of a peacetime economy. Then he talks about the debt bubble and big wealth gap, uh, which then feeds, which is the, at the top of the cycle, which then leads into uh, the debt bust and economic downturn. The only fix to that the government has is to print money and uh, credit, which means add to the debt, which leads to revolution and war, which leads to debt and political restructuring, which leads to an established world order. The cycle continues. Now, I want to push back a little bit in the sense that, uh, and he does make the point, he says Hitler built a, a, built a strong economy and the Chinese built a strong economy. And there's a common theory between both of them that, that Germany was this economic powerhouse that simply couldn't be stopped. And I, I want to point this out in order to push back on Ray Dalio's point. It's may bear with me. This may seem like a detour. 
in the 1930s, there was more going on outside of the fact that Germany was building and preparing for a wartime economy. They had outrageous government spending, which contributed to the GDP. They also had a lot to gain in the sense that they lost so much during the Great Depression, had such a great bubble and gap that they could have done nothing and still seen a recovery. Now, granted, they had unfair sanctions put on them by the Treaty of Versailles. He had unfair reparations to repay to the French and her allies. I understand that. And they did not have the same base uh, as the German Empire did. They had to uh, forcefully give a lot of uh, Rhineland exports to the French instead of using it to uh, further their own economies. But the loss was so titanic, the fact that they had to change their currency because their previous uh, Deutschmark was worthless meant that new economic growth was inevitable. It was essentially you were at rock bottom and you have nowhere else to go. Conceivably, if they developed, uh, devolved into a civil war, I suppose, but my point is that due to the fact that they were authoritarian does not mean that they had a strong economy. Simultaneously, the French, both the French and the English were dealing with communists in their country. You had the French Commune, which was a very powerful union of uh, socialists, uh, anarcho-liberals or anarchist liberals, um, communists uh, that formed a lot of the anti-war protesters from World War I uh, and even before then. And a lot of the, the dysfunction of the French economy led to the, f the French military simply not being prepared uh, or not being funded while you also had uh, these high regulations on French business and uh, machine exports and the tax rates that were imposed on those with wealth uh, meant that the French economy had a hard time recovering or had slow recovery, much like you saw in the United States with FDR's New Deal. If you look at it, we had one of the slowest recoveries after the Great Depression through the, uh, the New Deal, the two new deals that were part of that. And to keep it in Europe, with the English, you had a, a similar situation in which uh, the UK had gone pretty far socialist. Uh, and with Stanley Baldwin, he essentially cut military spending down to the bone. And the British economy had the same problems as the French economy. You had a high top-end tax rate. You had little reinvestment in companies. You had... Um, much of the crashes that were going on after the debt bursting and economic downturn that uh, Ray Dalio does describe, uh, in order to avoid the war and revolution part, the English and the French both moved at the printing money and, and credit and all sorts of social and welfare program reforms. I bring all of this up to say that the German economy was a little overstated in the sense that their allies, or their enemies, obviously not their allies, their enemies were so weakened by the Great Depression that by the time 1936 rolls around, which is where Hitler's program, action programs, uh, when it came to foreign policies, really took place, um, you have 
enemies that were still recovering, licking their wounds, and worrying more about trying to keep the socialists down instead of fighting off the Germans. And I bring this up because Ray says that China is very similar. Now, China is taking the coronavirus opportunity to crack down on Hong Kong, to go after Vietnam, to go after Japan and Taiwan and South China Sea. I understand all of that. I understand that that is going on. I am not blind to it. But the Chinese economy is in the same situation. It only looks powerful and strong right now because the rest of the West is weakened. And if Trump gets reelected, you'll see the Chinese recoil. They don't like sunlight. And the Chinese government is a lot of things. Stupid is not one of them. And they've been stealthy for a very, very long time. And as soon as the world, as soon as the U.S. stabilizes, if and should Trump win, he understands how to deal with these people. And if we had in the 1930s, stronger or governments that were in a position to oppose Hitler, World War II may not have happened for a while. If in 1936, when Hitler crosses the Rhineland, there was enough economic and military strength among the Allies to put their foot down and say, get out or there's war, which is what the Versailles Treaty stipulated, Hitler would have had to back down and the facade that the Nazi party put up, this power that seemed to emanate from Hitler, that would have been dispelled. Similarly with the Chinese, these guys only understand one thing, and that's if you punch them in the mouth, you're stronger than they are. That's the only thing they respect. They don't respect your diplomacy. They think that makes you look weak. They don't respect you standing on your val values and morals and trying to convince you otherwise. They think that makes you weak. The only thing these guys understand is power. That's the only thing that authoritarian regimes understand. It's the only thing that terrorists understand in the Middle East. It's the only thing that Iran and the people that run that country understand. It's the only thing that Putin understands is power. It's a very simplistic way of governing, yes. But then again, authoritarian regimes are simplistic. The oldest form of government. I think it's worth reading Ray's statement. You can find it on, on LinkedIn and wherever. Just look up Ray Dalio, uh, U.S.-China War. So I, I do think it is important to look up his position and his reasonings. With that being said, I don't agree if Trump wins, that, that being contingent on Trump winning. Should Biden win and we have someone who kowtows to China? I don't even think we get to armed conflict. I think China just rolls over everybody. That's the way it was for 40 years until Trump showed up. You can call me partisan, call me what you want, but prove me wrong. China went after, or Trump went after these people. And they buckled pretty quickly. You remember the riots in Hong Kong. You remember the protests that were starting to pop up before the Chinese, you know, started genociding these people. And then the coronavirus hits. 
then our economy takes a tumble because of the lockdowns, because of these horrible lacerations that we've inflicted on our own economy because of the cowardice among our government. And it's laid fertile ground for the Chinese to come back. Their economy isn't necessarily stronger than it was. And if Trump wins again, he can shut down this kind of stuff because he's done it before. But Biden wins? We may not see the economic growth on the other side and, well, pray for the people in Hong Kong. Pray for the people in Vietnam, Taiwan, Japan. And may God have mercy on the West. That being said, we do have uh, a couple more articles here to get to in this final segment. Uh, a horrible opinion in the New York Times about the economy by somebody who uh, I should probably talk more uh, highly of, uh, who has accomplished a lot, but I think someone who is blinded by their political ideology and 30-year fixed-rate mortgages drop down below threes. This is The Kevin Prendeville Show. Well, I want to thank you again for inviting me back into wherever it is that uh, you're listening to this from, whether it is your car, uh, at home, uh, on a podcast, wherever or however you're listening to this show. I hope that I'm able to impart some knowledge on you, and I hope that you're able to gain something from our conversations because these are trying times. And I think we both need to understand with what's going on, and hopefully I can give you some context to that and, and help out um, in any way that I can. Heck, that's why I started in business anyways. Well, we've got uh, by Rakur uh, Shamra, who's a global investor and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, who has written that Germany, not China, not the U.S., will be the champion of the uh, the economic champion after this. Um, now, his argument is, I think, rather asinine. But let me get to it. It's still important. Now, he talks about Germany's history of industrialization, which is true. Germany's have had a very strong, I mean, German cars are way over-engineered, but, but Germany's always had that engineering and industrial prowess and history, whether it's the Krupp family or, uh, you know, the, the uh, motor works of BMW or, uh, you know, even Mercedes and Porsche. There's a long list of German makers of trinkets and engines and uh, industrial power that most countries w would envy. And it's rightly put them near the top of the list when it comes to their economies. I will grant this article that. Now, he talks about uh, efficient government. Uh, okay, they're in the EU. That is... I'm not going to grant him that. Uh, efficient government is code word for authoritarian. That They don't have the... And you, you see, they, they have a lot of the policies that the European Union has put forward. They have a lot of the uh, ideals and idealism 
of a lot of the elites in the European Union because as a member state of the European Parliament or uh, European Union, uh, you're just a satellite. You don't necessarily have your own national laws and rules. Uh, You have what Parliament and Cabinet in Brussels wants. You know, and a a great, I would point you to the Nigel Farage interview on The Verdict with um, Ted Cruz. Nigel talks about that endlessly and why they they created Brexit. So I'm not going to grant him the efficient government right. And of course, this is also a subtle knock at Trump saying, oh, he didn't believe the science, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's New York Times. What are you going to do? Low debt, maybe low in comparison to the United States. But again, uh, they don't have the same military spending. They don't have to. You know, they've got, uh, they've got the U.S. and NATO essentially backing them up. And this is a lot you see with Denmark, you see it with Sweden and Norway, where they have more spending on social programs because they simply don't have a military or nothing comparable to the military that the United States have or has. Most of the U.N., most of the U.N. military forces, U.S. troops, like it or not, we are the policemen of the world. We are the atlas of the world whether it's economic or military. So low debt, kind of, but their economy is so weak that they have negative interest rates on bond rates. So if all this stuff is great and all this stuff is so wonderful and they they kept all of these people on on the payroll and they've got this Angela Merkel's so wonderful, of course, it's the New York Times, they're going to say that, um, and they've got all of these uh, fantastic services. Why do they have negative bond rates? Remember, there's only two things a government can do, three when the economy is weak. Print money, cut bond rates, raise taxes. Raise or lower taxes, I suppose. So if their economy was so strong, if their debt was so low, what happened to those prime rates over there? here <laughs> and and he even admits it he expects you to not understand what's going on the, he expects the reader to be an idiot or or have the attention span of a house fly germany's public debt is expected ride to rise but only 82% of gdp it's not great i understand you still have uh, a little room for growth there I understand that you that that they're they're it's technically not a hundred percent, and again, debt is only bad. That's the general economics of the day. Debt is only bad when it's above a hundred percent of the GDP. But eighty-two percent negative bond rates. You can't fool me. Again, he admits in the article, and and something I was going to bring up, uh, whether he did or not, uh, how much Germany imports. 
that's not a bad thing. Sometimes some countries are more blessed with natural resources than others. But they do have to import plenty of goods, and they did suffer in the in the uh, U.S.-China trade wars. And that they are, and the article goes on to describe these tech companies that they're developing and all this stuff. And good for them. I hope they do well. They're sort of an ally, um, or at least they're not an enemy. So, you know, good for them. Hope they, hope it goes well. Hope it jumpstarts their economy. To say that they're going to win? No, no, no. Not going to be China. It's going, at the end of the day, it's going to be the U.S. And I don't say that out of blind patriotism because, uh, you know, I, I, I love my country and I love what we stand for, and I do. Still got positive bond rates, barely. We've still got a democratic republic. We've still got national sovereignty. We don't have the EU over us. We have not... And now, granted, the, the euro is stronger than the dollar, unfortunately. So Germany has that. But we have the weight of the world on our shoulders, economically and militarily. And our economy has still survived these brutal 120 days. We will win again once these lockdowns are lifted. Not Germany, not China, not Russia, not the UK, not any other country conceivable on earth the u.s will win again now i did want to get to i know we'll talk about mortgage rates but we kind of already touched on this when it comes to um when it came to mortgage rates and the german bond rates and the and mortgages uh, in order to keep people buying you want them uh low anyways uh and the way to do that is to keep cutting the bond rates now uh a much more interesting article was the strike for black lives. And this is what I want to end on. And essentially saying that the unions are outdated and just simple political tools at this point. We've come so far in a worker and corporation relationships that Unions and the right of the workers, I'm not saying that the workers don't have a right to unionize, but that unions are essentially extortion rackets for the Democrats at this point. They own all the unions, most of them at least. And uh, there's a case in Massachusetts, I remember growing up, this was, and I mean growing up, I, I think uh, this was just before I went to the State House in Boston. And, uh, a worker, I believe it was an auto mechanic that was not unionized, got benefits from a union negotiation, and the union turned around and said, well, you better pay us dues for that. And the guy said, I'm not a part of your union. And so the union was giving him a hard time about it, and he went to court. And eventually the court did rule in favor of the mechanic. I believe that was the case. 
Now, uh, yeah, it's great if you can negotiate a pay raise. It's great if you can, uh, you know, strong arm corporations into uh, shuffling more money uh, into certain programs. But then to turn around and be so blatantly political, you're not necessarily representing all your workers. You're advocating in this case with Black Lives Matter for a Marx, some sort of Marxist revolution. You are attempting to create a situation in which workers who are in some cases forced to be part of a union are now forced to follow a political line that they may not agree with. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is tyranny. It's everywhere. Remember, men is born free, but everywhere he's in chains. I'm Kevin Prendeville. This has been The Kevin Prendeville Show. Thank you so much for letting me into wherever you are listening, whether it is via car, uh, podcast, uh, in your home, wherever or however you are listening to us. I appreciate your time today. We'll be back on Wednesday with The Kevin Prendeville Show. Stay with us.